Podcast, journeying together into deep discipleship. I'm Brian Fisher, and this is episode 72. The Hobbit shoots free throws. <laughs> it's not as easy as you might think to name these episodes. As a reminder, the Sword and the Roots website is chocked full of information and resources about this podcast and the Sword and Roots organization. You can find all of the audio episodes there, as well as our blog section, which contains many of the episodes in written form. If you're interested in learning about, or joining, or even starting a greenhouse, you can find details about them on the site as well. When I was a kid, I was very, very, very short. As a sophomore in high school, I measured in at 4 feet 10 inches and weighed less than 120 pounds. And I had bad acne. And I was somewhat of a nerd. In fact, I spent most of my high school career ranked number two in our class. None of this made me particularly popular, though I did somehow avoid getting beat up and doing other kids' homework. However, as I approached the end of my senior year, something magical happened. My class rank jumped to number one, tied with another much taller nerd. Now, the gap between valedictorian and salutatorian was actually pretty big. It could mean getting into or not getting into a competitive college, awards at graduation, and most importantly, money. The difference between graduating first or second could be measured in the thousands of dollars of college scholarships. I attended McDowell High School in Erie, Pennsylvania, and at least back then, gym class was graded. But it wasn't graded on participation, it was graded on performance. Each semester, we were subjected to learning a new sport and then assessed based on our athletic ability to play said sport. As my high school career drew to a close and the class ranks were about to be locked in for graduation, I had one last athletic hurdle to overcome. Basketball. I needed an A in gym class in order to keep my class rank, and in order to get an A in gym class, I needed to get an A in one last basketball skill challenge, free throws. I needed to sink 7 out of 10 of these things from the line. Somewhere along the way, I wondered how my high school career had come down to this. For all the studying and tests and papers and speeches I had given, my class rank was now dependent on my ability to succeed in a sport I didn't like, using a body that wasn't made in any way, shape, or form for basketball. The irony was inescapable. The good news is you could take the skills challenge as many times as you wanted throughout the term. The bad news is I had taken the challenge about 20 times, and hadn't gotten anywhere close to sinking 7 out of 10 free throws. I attempted to negotiate, cajole, persuade, and beg my gym teacher, Coach Fuller, to let me earn an A in any other way, including extra credit. I argued that 7 out of 10 shots was just unrealistic. Shaquille O'Neal averaged 53% from the line, and he's like 9 feet tall. How was I supposed to average 70%? Coach Fuller, however, was not someone to be trifled with, and insisted I had to earn my A like everyone else. So, on the very last day of gym class, there I sat, still unable to hit 70%. I took the test twice during the class and failed, and then the bell rang. In a last-ditch effort, I asked Coach Fuller if I could stay after class and take the test just one more time. 
Somewhat exasperated, Coach agreed. After everyone else left, he came up and said, Hey, look, you need to line up your elbow and your wrist and your hand. When you shoot the ball, you need your body positioned properly. Your elbow keeps sticking out. That's why you keep missing your shots. So he took my arm and maneuvered it around until he thought I was in the proper position. There, he said, now try that. I suppose if my high school life was a movie, the theme to Chariots of Fire or Rudy would have started playing softly in the background at that moment, and the next few minutes would have been in slow motion. In fact, that's how I remember it. Time slowed down as I stood there shooting baskets for thousands of dollars of non-athletic scholarship money. Believe it or not, in those tense moments after my last class of the semester, I hit 7 out of 10 free throws. It was the first time I achieved 70%, and I haven't done it since. Each of our lives has these moments, these key events that often shape who we are and who we will become. Sometimes they're moments of triumph, perhaps a come-from-behind victory or a successful underdog scenario. Or they are profoundly important scenes from our key relationships, how we got engaged to our spouse, the birth of our children, our first kiss, our first dance. Maybe they're moments from meaningful vacations or excursions, a perfect day on the slopes, or catching a glimpse of a manta ray while snorkeling. The first time seeing the Grand Canyon or watching a dramatic thunderstorm from an airplane. We may not remember what we had for lunch yesterday, but each of us has a collection of wonderful memories that are emblazoned on our hearts and our minds. And we pull them out once in a while in a quiet moment or perhaps when we're sharing with friends. There are other types of memories branded onto our souls, though these are moments we might want to forget. The moment our parents told us they were getting a divorce the concerned look of a doctor after reviewing our test results, the day our child walked out yet to come back, or the moment we realized a dear friend was no longer a friend at all. These moments, these imprinted wonderful or difficult memories, form our stories, and our stories form us. They form our hearts, our spirits. It's part of being a deep disciple is looking back on our stories in order to determine how and why we've been formed into who we are today. Once in a while, we throw in a bonus episode here on the Soylent Roots journey. We're about a dozen episodes or so into season four, so it seems like a good time to slow down, pull back a bit, and remember the story we've explored to this point. So whether you're experiencing the Soylent Roots journey by yourself, or becoming a deep disciple in a greenhouse, chances are you've made some memories over the past few years. So let's pull out some of the highlights from our time together as we prepare to dive more into the kingdom the rest of this season. Our journey began with the realization that modern Christianity preaches and teaches about making disciples, but struggles to actually make them. Philosopher Dallas Willard called this irony the Great Omission. He wrote an entire book about it, lectured on it, and did his best to wake the church up to its reality. He said, quote, What we've arrived at in North America is wall-to-wall non-discipleship Christianity. End quote. Willard believed there are three variations of the gospel preached today, none of which are the actual biblical gospel. He said, quote, The first is that believing Jesus suffered for your sins and brings forgiveness in heaven. Is that true? Yes, it's true, but that's not the gospel. It's actually one theory of the atonement, and it does not make up the whole of the gospel. End quote. Here at Soil and Roots, we've referred to this as the reductionist gospel. It's good news, it's just not nearly the entire story. His second version of the gospel is about liberation and deliverance from oppression, typically associated with the theologically left. Willard said the third version is what he called churchmanship. 
You take care of your church, and your church will take care of you. Today, that's widely practiced in Christianity, much more widely than people think, and unfortunately, that gospel isn't even true. End quote. We should let this sink in. From his perspective, and the perspective of numerous Christian and non-Christian thinkers, the West, the supposed great bastion and light of Christianity to the world, isn't actually doing the very thing it claims to be best in the world at. We've looked at this great omission from a few different angles. In the book The Critical Journey, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulich propose there are six stages in our journey to becoming more like Jesus. Chances are we're familiar with the first three, being introduced to God, learning about him, and then serving him through the church and other opportunities. However, many of us aren't taught and haven't yet discovered the last three stages, the journey inward, the journey outward, and living a life of love. Hagberg and Gulich suggested that modern church institutions only emphasize and teach the first three stages, so few of us actually know what's next after we begin that life of service. Now this stage four, this journey inward, may seem awkward or even wrong to us. This stage involves serious and potentially long-term self-introspection. It involves digging into the bedrock of our hearts, exploring our stories, and asking questions about ourselves and those around us that we just may not want to ask. It just seems selfish. Yet, it is a necessary step if we want to eventually live the type of life that Jesus and his apostles lived. We can't get to stage six, this life of love, without venturing through this time of serious self-probing. Most of us don't venture into stage four because it always involves some sort of wall. The wall can be any number of things. A theological crisis, a divorce, an illness, a betrayal, wayward children, a job or life change, or the passing of someone close to us. The wall shakes us up, causes us to question what we learned and assumed in the first three stages of our formation. My wife and I hit the wall several years ago when we were forced out of a community that we had helped to build. It shook us to the core of our hearts and caused us to revisit a lot of things we had assumed, things we'd assumed about God and ourselves, others, the modern church, and even the Christian faith. Now, the wall is really the beginning of our journey into what we here at Soil and Roots call deep discipleship. Some people hit the wall and fall back into stages one, two, and three. Some people just pile on coping mechanisms, more work, more volunteerism, more doctrine. Some people give up and disconnect from the faith entirely. They deconstruct. Hulu produced a documentary on Hillsong, the Australia-based megachurch that fell into various scandals over the past several years. It was revealed that the founding pastor was a serial child sex predator. His son faced legal problems as a result and eventually resigned from that church. The pastor of the thriving New York City branch of Hillsong committed adultery and lost his position. Hillsong itself is now a fraction of its former size and influence, beaten and battered by financial challenges, moral failure, and corrupted leadership practices. Though the documentary explored the impact of these events on the pastors, it also explored the impact of this implosion on various staff and church members. I think we would consider the collapse of a megachurch in the midst of scandals to be a type of wall, and it was fascinating to watch how various people responded. Some remained in the faith, and they just found other churches. They pressed into the questions and concerns the scandals raised, they explored their own hearts, and seemingly became wiser and deeper as a result. 
Others left biblical doctrine and adopted their own versions of Christianity, using the church's collapse as justification for leaving out the parts of the Bible they just didn't like. One woman remains a Christian, but refuses to attend any sort of organized church. She's just done with institutional Christianity. Several people left the faith altogether and are now atheists or agnostics. They all faced the wall. A few pressed into it, while most gave up in one way or the other. But when we embrace the wall and we venture into it, we have started our journey into deep discipleship, and the riches of the faith await on the other side. Truth is, if we're quiet enough, we can often sense there is more to this Christian life than what we're experiencing anyhow. We sense we're disconnected from God, from others, even from ourselves. Surely this abundant life means more than our very good Christian rituals. We seem to intuitively know there are stages in our formation we haven't yet explored, but we just aren't sure how to get there. And if the wall is a necessary step in our journey, well, sometimes we'd rather not experience the pain and the introspection that it requires. However, in modern Christianity, we face some additional obstacles beyond what to do with the inevitable wall. Our era is facing three primary problems, potential blockers to the later stages of our spiritual formation. We call these the discipleship dilemma, the formation gap, and the forgotten kingdom. When I first became aware of the discipleship dilemma, I wasn't aware of the concept of the six stages of spiritual formation. Yet, the discipleship dilemma is bound up in what we just mentioned, that journey inward, stage four, the wall. Rob Lone and Randy Reese put it this way, quote, Engaging in the work of serving God and others without proper inward preparation and guidance is as spiritually foolish as climbing a challenging mountain without proper preparation is physically dangerous. There have been many casualties because leaders have failed to heed Paul's exhortation to pay attention to yourself, pay attention to your person, your character, end quote. They went on, there was an understanding among the early church fathers that true knowledge in the life of faith is always a double knowledge. Knowledge of God paired with knowledge of ourselves. They go on to cite John Calvin, Bernard of Clairvaux, Julian of Norwich, Blaise Pascal, Augustine, all of whom firmly endorsed the idea that our journey to know God more fully is dependent on our willingness to know ourselves more fully. Yet, modern Christianity provides little endorsement, help, or guidance into this exploration of our own hearts. Thus, the dilemma. In order to become more and more like Jesus, we must dig beneath the surface into our own hearts, and that's just not a message we hear from most pulpits and preachers today. Well, what does this exploration of our hearts look like? It looks like uncovering the hidden ideas and desires that truly form and shape us. These ideas, assumptions, principles, and concepts that power and govern us often lay hidden, buried underneath layers of experiences, relationships, belief statements, doctrine, personality, coping strategies. Few people ever take the time and effort to venture down into our soil and roots in order to explore the ideas that govern us. Yet, that's often where genuine freedom and healing and peace are actually found. It's not that we don't have the tools and markers to go excavating, however. God has ingeniously wired the human heart to display its deep ideas and desires through eight indicators. Our thought patterns, our emotions, health, relationships, behaviors, words, and how we use time and money. 
These eight indicators are often plain, earthy, even boring. Most of the time we don't pay attention to them, but that's sort of the point. By inviting God and trusted friend or a spouse into the examination of our indicators, we open up ourselves to peering down into our souls. Why do we think the way we do? Why do certain relationships trigger us? Why are we wound so tight? Or why do we not care much at all? Why do we spend more time at work than what is really needed? Why can't we control our spending at certain times of the year? Why do we get into these ruts of how we communicate or not communicate with our spouses? If the term worldview refers to the set of beliefs through which we see the world, the term heart view refers to the journey of exploring our set of ideas by which we operate in the world. So heart view often lays quietly underneath our worldview, and they don't always line up. I made up the word heart view. Who knows if it'll stick, but what's more important is that we practice it, that we take our indicators to God, our spouses, or our friends, and courageously ask the hard questions about why we are the way we are. For the most part, heart view isn't something we'll learn about or practice in the first three stages of our spiritual formation, though it's essential as we journey inward. After we practice it for a while, we find ourselves then searching the hearts of others so that we may love them better. We don't practice heart view just on ourselves. We eventually learn to spot the eight indicators in other people for the purpose of serving them more like Jesus would serve them. This first problem, the discipleship dilemma, is an enormous challenge to our spiritual formation. We just aren't taught and encouraged to excavate our hearts or to learn to discern the hearts of others. And that's why we explored it all of season two. The discipleship dilemma raises some further questions about the modern church. If we're facing the great omission, and if most churches don't know or don't care to guide us into the later stages of our discipleship journey, we find ourselves in a sort of gap, a formation gap. We may find ourselves stalled out in the first few stages of our formation, or we wake up one day and realize we're just doing church, but it's become relatively lifeless and routine. If we've been in church a long time, we realize that we've heard this version of the sermon before, many times in fact, and we can't seem to find a place where we can press into the deeper things of the faith or where we can press into our stories and how we fit into God's grand narrative. In season three, we explored that virtually every intentionally designed formative human experience features five key elements, time, habit, community, intimacy, and instruction. Whether it be early childhood, a professional sports team, marriage, addiction recovery, college, or the military, our culture makes the understood assumption that in order to be formed like someone else, we need to join and participate in groups that are specifically designed to form us. Except if we're talking about modern Christianity and the most important formation of our lives, the journey of becoming more like Jesus. If extensive time, specifically designed habits, intentional community, appropriate transparency, and repetitious and increasingly complex instruction are hallmarks of every other type of formative human experience, we have to sit back and wonder why these are not hallmarks of the modern discipleship effort. Our Western lifestyle has a lot to do with it, though we also need to take a good and hard critical look at our Christian institutions. Ultimately, we need to peer into our own hearts. Do we really want to become more like Jesus? We kind of know what that means, most likely some suffering, giving things up, confronting our hearts and the hearts of others, probably being disliked by some, learning to love our enemies, becoming radically generous, 
and overall looking a little bit weird, both to the culture and, frankly, to our church. When we wrestle with the formation gap, it forces a lot of questions. Why do I take my daughter to gymnastics four days a week so that she can be formed into an athlete, but I show up to small group once a month and expect to become more like Jesus? Do I really think a weekly 30-minute monologue is the most spiritually formative thing in my life? We can point fingers at our lifestyle or our churches if we want to come up with a cause of the formation gap. We can look at things like prosperity, a lack of difficult persecution, and the noise we create in our lives to cover up our struggles and pain. Those are all valid points. But perhaps there are some even deeper things in play that help to explain our, frankly, lack of interest or desire for genuine discipleship. Perhaps we're not really sure why we're here. Most of us experience the Bible in pieces and parts. We've been trained to use it as a sort of reference or instruction manual. We unconsciously assume it's like a dictionary or encyclopedia. If we're struggling with a sin or a question, depression or anxiety, we look up certain passages that address our needs. Unless we're part of a liturgical congregation, our churches either preach through one chapter or book of the Bible, or they do a series of sermons based on a topic, in which case they use passages from various places. Either way, it's pretty rare that we experience the Bible as a grand narrative. We don't tend to think of the Bible as a story, a detailed, vibrant, heart-pounding tale of God and the human race. Even if we read through the Bible in a year, many of us give up in Leviticus, and even if we don't, we may not pick up on the themes or the threads or the design or the rich motifs woven from Genesis through Revelation. If we don't become familiar with the big story, the meta-narrative, we may struggle to recognize and embrace what God is doing in the cosmos and what he's doing in and through us. God created the world and invited us, his image bearers, to rule it with him. We decided we were more qualified to determine good and evil than God, and we chose to rule the world ourselves. And then everything went haywire. Instead of one good, peaceful, and flourishing kingdom, there were now two kingdoms, one of light and one of darkness. Instead of fulfilling God's original good plan for humans, we more often than not acted like beasts, caving into the desire to become gods ourselves. The Old Testament chronicles this conflict not only between the two kingdoms, but in the hearts of men and women. The solution was a human king who would not fall prey to this beastly instinct, who would suffer temptation successfully, reject the darkness's ideas of power, and teach us a new way to be human, to be the type of human being that God originally intended us to be. However, the only person to fix this cosmic problem was God himself, the God-man. And he conquered the kingdom of darkness in the most unexpected way by dying for his enemies, us. He ascended to his throne on the cross, broke the back of darkness with his resurrection, and took his rightful place as king of the universe when he ascended. And then his third person, his spirit, arrived to embolden and empower those who reject the darkness and embrace the light. Throughout biblical history, God has shown an extraordinary desire and passion to be with us, first in the garden, then in the tabernacle and the temple, then in the person of Jesus himself, and now through his spirit. And at some point in the future, the universal conquering of darkness will be complete, and the Son will hand over the kingdom to his Father after he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And that won't really be the end. It will actually be more of the beginning. But in our culture, we've forgotten this kingdom and perhaps the grand narrative of the Bible. We've made the gospel so much about our personal salvation. We've forgotten that the story is 
much bigger than just us. God will return the earth to its Eden state, but even better. And he will dwell with his people, and he will be our God. As we survey all that we've explored since season one, many of us resonate with the great omission and the discipleship dilemma, and maybe even the formation gap. I've actually yet to find a Christian leader who thinks modern discipleship is going really well. Virtually everyone I encounter agrees that we are suffering from the great omission. We really aren't making disciples. Once we get our arms around the concept of these hidden ideas and desires that form us, most people I run into resonate with that. We intuitively know there are some things in our hearts that just don't align with our beliefs. We have this sense that our hearts aren't always connected to God or others or sometimes even ourselves. The discipleship dilemma, eh, that can be a hard sell, but only because so many of us have been trained to believe that our stories just don't matter. Though the fact that our ability to know God more deeply is dependent on knowing ourselves more deeply was a long-held accepted assumption of the faith this concept of double knowledge has largely been lost to history. Whether we call it self-probing or introspection or digging beneath the surface, heart view, contemplation, uncovering our hidden ideas, or simply stage four of our spiritual formation, this practice is probably going to take a while to settle into our hearts and souls. I don't find many people who disagree with it. It just seems a little bit foreign or uncomfortable. And most people I run into agree with the formation gap. It's just simple anthropology. Our hearts need certain things in order to be formed like someone else. Many people recognize we don't have access to the types of intimate, long-term, faithful communities we see reflected in our sitcoms. And we intuitively know that that's not good. We love our churches, and we should, but when compared to other formative experiences, we recognize our spiritual formation really isn't front and center in our lives, we just may not be sure what to do about it. But when we get to this other problem, the forgotten kingdom, well, things get interesting. The kingdom is a primary theme of scripture. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us we should seek the kingdom first. It's the first thing he teaches us to pray for, that the kingdom will come. We know Jesus incepted the kingdom and he told us it would grow. He told us the darkness won't prevail over it. We know he hands it over to his father somewhere down the road. Jesus spent a lot of time and effort to teach us how to live in it. So why then is there so much cloudiness and confusion and disagreement on what this kingdom actually is? If it's so important to the meta narrative and so important to Jesus, shouldn't we be able to agree on what it is and what we should be doing in it? Of the three primary problems, the forgotten kingdom may well be the most challenging and we've explored at least one reason why. It's our view of the end times, whether well-defined or not, actually have a big impact on how we unconsciously or consciously define the kingdom and what we assume we should be doing in it right now. We boiled down various end times perspectives into two groups, splitters and joiners, and it's unlikely those two groups will find any consensus anytime soon. Splitters view the meta-narrative of the Bible as splitting into two groups, Israel and the church. This leads to a view of biblical prophecy that calls for the world to wind down towards a time of terrible tribulation and evil and death. Along with Israel and the church, other things get split. The second coming of Jesus is normally split into two events, the rapture and the final second coming. And this idea of the kingdom 
is actually split. Though our current era, the church age, may find the number of Christians growing and evangelism spreading, the redemption of all creation doesn't happen through the church in this age. It only really begins after Christ comes back in the future during a literal 1,000-year millennium. So this current age, the church age, works like a sort of parenthetical expression between Jesus' first and second coming. The cosmic, restorative work of Christ gets split by our current era. So this leads to a pessimistic idea of expectation regarding the church age, and it often results in ideas of purpose that center around evangelism and relief. We find little reason to engage in six of the mountains of culture or in creation itself, since much of that will be destroyed in the tribulation, only to be restored in the millennium. The joiners view the meta-narrative of the Bible as joining Israel and the church. This leads to a view of biblical prophecy that's largely been fulfilled. It's already done. So the world isn't heading towards a time of terrible tribulation. It's either winding up or bouncing around in cycles. Other things also get joined. There is only one second coming of Jesus, and the kingdom doesn't get split. It instead grows on a continuum. The church age isn't a break between the inception of the kingdom and its cosmic restoration. The church in the church age is the primary means by which that cosmic restoration happens. A joiner's idea of expectation about the church age is usually more optimistic, and typically their ideas of purpose, why we're here, are broader and more comprehensive than the splitter. By the way, most of these assumptions about the future of the church age and the kingdom and our purpose, they're unconscious. That's what I'm trying to point out. If we go to a church that functions from a splitter perspective, chances are we'll find evangelism and relief efforts. We may not find as many efforts to reform government, influence the fashion industry, or make great art. If we're splitters, it's not that we're against these things. They just don't fit into our unconscious assumptions about the kingdom and our era, particularly if we believe the tribulation is right around the corner. If we go to a church that functions from a joiner perspective, well, it may not be that much different if we're in the West right now. Much of the type of reformational work being done in creation and the other six mountains of culture is actually happening through parachurch organizations and not specific denominations or congregations. All that to say, splitters and joiners don't actually have all that much in common when it comes to the Forgotten Kingdom, at least what it means in our current age. One tends to view the purpose as the salvation from creation, while the other tends to view the purpose as the salvation of creation. One tends to view the end game as getting to heaven, while the other views the end game as heaven coming to earth. These are no small differences, and they impact us and our families, our churches, and the culture in more ways than we can possibly count. This forgotten kingdom its probably the trickiest of the three primary problems, and that's why we commit to continuing to wrestle with it with you. So there you go. You're now up to date on our journey into deep discipleship. We certainly recognize we're facing some real challenges. Modern Christianity isn't really making disciples, people whose lives are centered around becoming more like Jesus. The good news is that's entirely solvable. We're also facing a discipleship dilemma. We've lost the assumption that our journey to know Jesus better means we work together to know our own hearts better. There's also good news here. The journey into our own hearts is the pathway towards a deeper love for others, and scores of people are now doing just that. We just need to decide to join them. We do live in a formation gap. Unlike generations past, many of us don't actually have access to communities whose purpose it is to help form our character. 
We may be accumulating knowledge. We may be serving. We may be doing some great things. But we lack specific five-element communities that are designed to form our spirits. Yet more good news here. Soylent Roots, along with many other organizations, are recognizing and addressing this formation gap. For our part, we help form and support specific small communities that we call greenhouses that embody all five elements in our journey to become more like Jesus. You can check out the website for more info. We do live in a culture that has forgotten the kingdom. For all the angst and reluctance to talk about theocracies, governments that claim to be run by a god, we actually live in one. We always have, but we've been living in a new type of theocracy for the past 2,000 years or so, and the sooner we embrace and proclaim that fact, the better. We realize we're not all on the same page regarding this kingdom, but it's so central to the Bible and to Jesus that simply being ignorant or confused about it really isn't going to work. If we're going to pray that the kingdom come, we should probably come to grips with what it is we're expecting to show up. If we're to seek it first, we should probably determine what it is we're supposed to be looking for. Otherwise, we may find ourselves missing a whole lot of free throws. Thanks for listening. Our exploration of the kingdom kicks back up after the next Greenhouse episode, and I look forward to continuing this journey into deep discipleship with you. For more information, check out the website at soilandroots.org. If you feel led to financially support Soil and Roots and Deep Discipleship, you can do that at the site as well, and you can sign up for our email newsletter. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at fish at soilandroots.org, and we'll see you next time.